Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. Mick Duncan has lived and worked in the slums of Manila, the inner city of Melbourne and in South Auckland. With academic degrees combined with street degrees, Mick brings his speaking and teaching, discernment, wisdom and tools, all for the trade of mission and ministry. This is Mick Duncan's Bible study entitled, I Want to Be Like Jesus, Yeah Right. This is the second session of Mick's Bible study entitled, Impossible Discipleship, Loving Neighbour. Um, thanks so much. Yesterday when we had our um, Bible study here in the morning, we were all, um, it was very circular and I was seated uh, with you, which is a preference, um, but I think we had a, a bit of problem with human traffic coming in late, so um, thus we've set it up thus, this way. Is that alright? Yeah. Um, so uh, thank you so much for coming. Yesterday I talked on loving God and maybe it was a little bit provocative. Um, and then I said that this morning what I wanted us to talk about is, I mean if I got a little bit theological and philosophical yesterday morning, uh, this morning I want to get very practical uh, around loving neighbour. So this is practical wisdom. Um, some of the little things that I've learnt along the way in terms of loving literal neighbours. Literal neighbours. Okay, it's all very well when we talk about loving neighbours and when somehow we kind of generalise them as a person way out there, but actually we have literal neighbours. Uh, most of us do. So to start off, I've got a text, seen it's a Bible study, <laughs> and forgive me for reading from my new iPhone, <laughs> but it's a 6S Plus. Um, I didn't pay for it, so, um, but I am rather liking it, <laughs> so it's confession time. So it says here in Mark chapter 2 that um, when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home so many gathered around that there was no longer room for them not even in front of the door and he was speaking the word to them and then some people came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them and when they could not bring him um, to Jesus because of the crowd they removed the roof above him and, I, and, having, and after having dug through it they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your, your sins are forgiven. Um, and you know the rest of the story, how this person, this paralytic, was healed. Uh, I think that's one of my favourite stories in all of Scripture. I don't know about you, but... Um, there's a number of things that I see in there... Uh, I mean, it is funny when you think about it, when it says that when Jesus looked up, you know, he saw their faith, but when the owners of the house looked up, <laughs> you know, what did they see? Um, 
roof terrors, you know, um, people indulging in antisocial behaviour. Um, and uh, I think that's quite delightful. Um, but I, I think one of the opening things that I'd like to share this morning is that, you know, when we think of spirituality today, you hear so much talk in and around um, people are on a spiritual journey. And, and really what that means for people, it's all about their heads and their hearts. It's very internal. It's about what they're going through. Where I, I tend to think that when we talk about our spiritual journeys, we've got to talk about not just our inward um, orientation, if you like, but also outward behavior. And when you read the Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament, especially the Hebrew scriptures, uh, whenever the minor or major prophets, they sort of lambasted the people about their worship, the comment was not being made that they weren't enthusiastic enough. It was that, that they didn't couple their worship in the temple, if you like, with appropriate love of neighbor outside of the temple. Um, and so thus we've got to talk about loving neighbor. And, you know, when I look at that passage in Mark, that, that passage in Mark, you know, when it says that Jesus saw their faith, well, what the heck did he see? I mean, did he see, you know, I don't know, these incredibly intense eyes in the four guys who were going to extraordinary lengths to help another human being. I mean, they had bundled him up into a stretcher and they had torn someone's roof apart to get this mate of theirs, arguably from the neighborhood, to Jesus. And Jesus looked up and saw their faith. But what did he see? I don't, an intense look in their eyes? I don't think so. Did he see some sort of I don't know, psychic, psychological, you know, convictions, you know, ricocheting around in their heads. I mean, is that what he saw? I mean, is that what he... No, what did he see? He saw four guys actually doing stuff with their hands and their feet. It's kind of embodied faith. And so that's where we're going in terms of our little chat, in terms of neighborhoods, all right? Is that good? Um, you know, what do we actually do? Not do we aspire. Now, to set the scene, uh, Ruby and I have just moved into a new neighborhood. Ruby's my wife of 36 years. Uh, we've been married way too long. Um, but she, um, we have lived in many, many different neighbourhoods, both in New Zealand and Australia and uh, overseas. Um, uh, and we've just shifted into, I believe, our last neighbourhood. I had a dream a year ago, and the dream basically said, Mick, your next shift is to be your last. And um, I thought that might be 10 years' time. I turned 60 last year. So I thought it might be 10 years' time, but actually it's come round quicker than I expected. And I want to get onto that um, soon. Here's my first point. It just staggers me with Christians, and I love them dearly. <laughs> so I'm not wanting to be unkind. I said yesterday that I, I am a person who does make observation. 
But it does stagger me with Christians that, you know, we seek guidance on a lot of areas of our lives. We seek guidance around work and job. We seek guidance around if we are to be married, who that person might be, and so forth and so on. But very few Christians, it seems to me, seek guidance in and around the neighbourhood in which they are to live in. So why do we seek guidance on so many other things, but we don't seek guidance, if you like? Why is there such a low degree of intentionality around the neighbourhood in which we live in? Now, am I right or am I right on this one? Um, is there a truth in that? So, if there is a truth in that, it begs the question, how do we make decisions in and around neighbourhood? which neighbourhoods to go to, because we need to be that intentional. It cannot just be the house prices in certain areas. It cannot just be, well, you know, that's our preference. You know, I mean, I do think the emerging generation, they are largely driven by preferences. Whereas my generation, we were more driven by bothersome principles. Do you get what I'm talking about? but you beg to differ, and that's fine. Um, but I do think that there is a principle of intentionality here at stake. So, how do you make decisions about neighbourhoods? This is my first point. I would say, number one, that when we went to live in the slums of Manila, and we lived in a plywood shack with, you know, mud floor, surrounded by literally hundreds and thousands of extremely poor people, and we lost one of our children there, and we suffered incredible sicknesses, and I could, it's a big long story, and I haven't got, I've written a book called Costly Mission, and that kind of sums up that story. But here's the interesting thing, when we went to the slums of Manila, we got no guidance whatsoever to go there. In other words, it was like one of those times, and you do have these seasons in your life, where God takes two steps backwards. And he says, you know, what is in your heart to do? Express yourself as a decision maker. Don't express yourself in this instance, Mick, as a waiter, waiting on guidance all the time. Because I've actually learned from these surrender conferences that actually people hide behind guidance. I've been to every surrender that there's ever been. There's only two of us that have done that, and I was hoping that the other guy wouldn't turn up this year, but he did. <laughs> and, but I've been to every single one. You know, I used to give these incredibly challenging talks way back in the early days, and I used to get people coming up to me and, and saying, oh, Mick, we just loved what you said, and, and you know, we're there, we're going to be there too, and, you know, you'll see us on the front lines, as it were, and no, 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 no. And I'd see them the second year, the third year, the fourth year, and they were still saying to me, loved what you said, but God hasn't spoken to us yet. And then it clicked to me on my fifth year that actually they were using the lack of guidance as a delay tactic. It was giving them an excuse to postpone something that they knew to be right. Did you get that? So... That's when I started to talk a lot about people become people of initiative. There is a place for you to express yourself as a decision maker and for you to choose a neighborhood to go to and God wants you at times to be such a chooser. So that's one basis in which we choose a neighborhood. The second basis is definitely guidance. 
Now, this last neighborhood that we have gone to, we receive guidance. Look, I tell you a very short story. Are you interested? Is that all right? That, you know, like, we had begun to think that we'd do another five to seven years where we were. And we had communicated that, the openness to it, to the groups that we were interfacing with. And then one Sunday afternoon, while I was just quietly having my last coffee for the day, um, a biblical reference gate-crashed my consciousness. Just the reference. And I thought, what the heck does that say? And so I looked up on my mobile, and it got my attention. Then I thought, I better look in a hard copy version, leant over to the bed, picked up a hard copy Bible, it fell to the very page. And I thought, oh my goodness, I didn't, you know. And then, um, <laughs> and then um, I read it, and the actual biblical reference said, it's time for your ship to leave this harbour, and for you to go to your own land. Then I thought, I won't tell Ruby a thing. She was out seeing our youngest daughter. And see what is the first thing that she says coming through the door. She comes in two hours later. She says, Mac, while I've been away, I've had this uncanny feeling that we're to go to our own place, our own tribe, our own people. And, and I mean, I don't have many hairs. <laughs> but they were tingling at the, you know. And, um, and so um, on that basis, we have gone to a new neighbourhood. So sometimes, what God does sometimes, he doesn't do all the time. Sometimes it's saying, God does, you decide. Be adult. Sometimes he says, oh, I want to tell you where to go. And you are to be relentlessly responsive. Now, have you had either experience? Just have a quick chat. Here we go, friends. So, um... So that's my first point that I'd like to make this morning, is getting highly intentional about choosing neighbourhood, however it's chosen. Um, we seem to be like that in other areas, but not in terms of neighbourhoods, and that, I'm, I struggle with that. Secondly, when we moved into this uh, new neighbourhood, so this is Practical Wisdom 101 on this stuff. The, the, the second thing that I'd like to say... Uh, one of the first things that Ruby and I did upon moving into this new neighbourhood, which was only in January of this year, so I'm, I'm teaching from much experience on this. <laughs> but the second thing we did, and we did it intentionally, is we sat down, Ruby and I, and we said, what are our identities as persons? You see, it's really important in this stuff that you give yourself a certain identity. In, us, in other words, you come up with a kind of a self-identity statement. Because you see, human psychology is such that you will always act consistently with the identity that you give yourself. Now, if Ruby and I gave ourselves the identity of husband and wife and homeowner in new neighbourhood, then we would act consistently with that identity. But you see, that's not enough. Are you with me? Um, so we had to work on who else are we starting a new neighbourhood? We are not just husband and wife. So we, we just said to each other, we took the husband and, hat, husband and wife hat off and we put the, we are neighbourhood community workers in this new neighbourhood. That's an identity. You see, if you don't have that identity, 
you will be hijacked by all the other voices. And they will just scream into your life, you know. And um, so, so that was the first thing we did. We locked eyes on each other, not in love and intimacy, but we just locked eyes on each other and said, you, I, we are community neighborhood workers. Okay? We always act consistently with the identity we give ourselves. That's the second point. Thirdly, the next thing that we did in this new neighborhood, and we've done this before, by the way, in other neighborhoods, but the next thing that we did was that uh, we came up with different neighborhood practices for each day of the week. Now, how's that for intentionality? Different neighborhood practices for each day of the week. So I'm going to tell you the seven practices that we came up with these don't have to be yours. I'm not saying that. You don't have to do what we do. But you have to get super clear on what you need to do and what your practices need to be. Because we're clear on what our initial practices need to be. First off, okay, Monday, we do prayer walking. So we, uh, we do certain streets each Monday of the week where we just walk the streets and pray out aloud, Ruby and I. And everyone thinks we're talking to each other, so it's no, you know. Uh, but that's what we do on Mondays. Um, on Tuesdays, uh, we do the art of uh, neighbouring. In other words, Tuesdays for day is our day for intentionally walking towards one of our literal neighbours. Uh, if if nothing surfaces in that week, in terms of literal face-on-face -face contact hours with literal neighbours, then Ruby and I will have a prayer time for each and every one of our literal neighbours. And we have, we bring out a big A3 piece of paper and our house is in the middle and it's surrounded by houses on both sides, uh, above and under and to the, the sides. And we have the name of each neighbour that we've got to know, a few minor details, about those neighbours and maybe something deep and meaningful that they may have shared with us and this could have all occurred within a month. So we have a big A, what's it, A5 or A3, the big one? A3, A3 sheet. And we bring that out. Uh, that's Tuesdays, Art of Neighbouring, okay? Uh, Wednesdays, Networking in the Town. Um, so for last Wednesday, the, before I've, I've been on the road a little bit, but uh, we managed to score Marvel comic Bible books. Marvel have converted the Bible into comic form. That's a really professional job. And Ruby and I have gone to every school, that we're in the process of going to every school in the town and giving them a copy of that free. It's just networking. We've only been there since January. Uh, when I get back, I'll be ringing up Aged Concern on a Wednesday to volunteer to be a person who will visit the shut-in elderly in our particular neighbourhood. So that's kind of networking on Wednesdays. On Thursdays, Ruby and I have team time. In other words, we are team members. And we sit down and we have a journal of what we've done thus far. We have minutes. Um, we have big, um, what do you call it, those big books where you put photos and... Uh, no, um, scrapbook, and we have arrows and diagrams, and 
We keep each other accountable. I mean, that's a rigorous time. That's on Thursdays. On Fridays, we don't have a cafe in our neighborhood. It's a bit of a battler suburb. So we have, um, but there is a bakery with plastic chairs and um, tables. We go and sit ourselves there for an hour to two hours every Friday morning. Uh, their coffee and um, donuts. Um, and it's just being a physical presence in the little village. On Saturday, they have a local farmer's market and we walk the market intentionally talking to strangers. It was helped by the fact that as soon as we got to this new town, somehow they heard about us, and because I have a bit of a minor profile in New Zealand, and a newspaper came and interviewed us, and our story, which is a very Jesus-centered story, was splashed over the front page of the local newspaper, <laughs> and a big article on us on page three. I mean, this is how God does things, I think. Um, and then on Sundays, a local faith community. So here's the point. We have seven practices for each day of the week. If you don't have practices, people, all you have is aspiration, and I'll predict something as a minor prophet, you will drift. You will experience drift in your neighborhood. And after a year or two years or three years, you'll think, boy, we haven't done much or not much has been accomplished. Drift occurs in Christian circles. So those are, have you got any practices? Tell the person next to you one practice that you might have. Here we go, friends. <coughs> so, um, here's a third thing that I'd like to raise, um, and it goes like this. Some social researchers went to, um, I'll give you the principal um, at the end, um, but some social researchers, and you may have heard this, went to uh, a, a campus, uh, I think it was Princeton or something in the US, and, and um, they went into the, the divinity school, and they said to the people in the divinity school, oh, so you're all studying the Bible, the scriptures, and they all said yes, and they said, oh, do you know the parable of the Good Samaritan, and they all said yes, and then they said, oh, um, who here would like to give a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan? And all hands went up. I mean, they were at divinity school, wanted to be mouths, you know. Um, so all hands went up. And then they said, well, start preparing your talks. And while they were preparing the talks, the two social researchers got another colleague of theirs, went to another part of the campus, you know, dressed him up in filthy jacket rags, poured whiskey, you've heard this, poured whiskey all over him, and then they, they dumped his skin bag of a body, you know, in a narrow corridor, um, and then they went back to the class, and they said, now, you've all got to talk to prepare on the parable of the Good Samaritan. They all said yes, and then they said, well, we'd like to divide you up into two kind of control groups. And so they said to one control group, they said, um, you know, hurry up. And by the way, we want you to give this talk, not here, but over in that building, another part of the campus, and you know what had to happen. They had to walk through the corridor. So they said to one group, hurry up. They said to the other group, take your time. They sequenced this appropriately, and they wanted to work out who would actually be the Good Samaritan. And what they noted, and it's a peer-reviewed piece of research, what they noted was, of the people that were told um, to hurry up, um, uh, over, I think, 63 to 70%, literally walked all over the body to give their talk on the Good Samaritan. 
of the people that were told to slow down, I think it was about... Um, no, sorry. Of the people that were told to hurry up, I think... Oh, I can't remember the exact figures, but of the people that were told to slow down, it was a huge... It was a much larger percentage who actually tried to do something for the person that was in front of them. The principle being, the principle being, that hurry damages some of our most important relationships. Especially some of our most important relationships in our neighbourhoods. So it seems to me that this hurry sickness is part of our problem. And for this reason, I think it's quite revealing that we have no record of Jesus running at all in the Gospels. And it seems to me that what is being encouraged is that you and I become slow activists. Because you see, the way radicalism is being portrayed today, it's like extreme sports. You know, it's like adrenaline buzz. It's like always being up. It's like going to the next... But actually, I think Jesus was a slow activist. You must get control of the speed limit in your own life, in your own neighbourhoods. Your neighbours are watching you. You are educating your neighbours on how you intend to proceed. So when Ruby and I moved into this new neighbourhood, we intentionally got hold of the handbrake. So that whenever there was interruption, we dropped everything. Are you with me? And by that, you speak volumes to your neighbours. That you become the kind of person that they can interrupt at any time. So that's that principle. Now, let me move on to the next. Here's another little bit of social research. And I make my point at the end. So stick with me. So you've slowed down. Guess what happens next? Actually, very quickly, tell the person next to you what happens next. Go to it. Go to it. Okay, here we go. So just a quick response there. What happens next? So are we up to principle number four? Four or five? Five, is it? Here it goes. It goes like this. Now, I'm going to give you the social research first and make the principle at the end. Um, I, I, an article came across my desk the other uh, last year where it basically said that you could reduce the success of marriage to one thing. Now, I don't know about you, but when I saw that, and again, it was peer-reviewed, you know, I thought, oh, no, that's just... That's just being overly simplistic, you know, in respect to a very complex arrangement. I mean, fancy reducing the success of marriage to one thing. So, but I was intrigued. It got my intention, so I read. And it came, the people who wrote the article were the Gottmans. I don't know if you've heard this, the Gottmans. And they have an institute where they have, they go in decades of their lives to just helping out, um, you know, people in their marriages and so forth. 
And, um, and what they did in 1987 was that they got a whole lot of people who were married to come in and they were to be interviewed. But while they were being interviewed, electrodes were attached to, you know, to get heart rate, sweat glands and pulse and all sorts of things. And then they interviewed these couples together. And, and you know, um, because people can present really well in an interview, but their physiology tells them that something else is going on, you know. Um, and so they um, did all these interviews and everyone went away and um, they looked at the results, collated the results, and then six years later, they wondered, you know, what happened to all of these couples. And um, what they saw in the results was they two groups were formed, and this is their language, um, the masters and the disasters. Um, in other words, those whose relationship was still vibrant and vital, but those whose relationship had either um, caved in or they were still together, but to all intents and purposes, not together. So they formed these two groups, the masters and the disasters. And, um, and then they wondered, so what is the key thing for the masters, those who really have mastered marriage? And so they got, you know, several years later, all of these people to come to a big retreat place. And they got these, these married couples to do ordinary things, like co have coffee, go to a movie, um, you know, wash a car, I don't know, uh, listen to music, go for a walk in the woods. They did, you know, and, and what they didn't know, that there were all these observers watching them. <laughs> and, and, um, and then what they isolated right at the end was that, the, yes, there was this one key factor that is the determinant of a successful marriage. And this is, and I hinted at it yesterday. Um, what they noticed was this, was that, that one, one person in the marriage would put out a bid. And like hubby might say, oh dear, there goes a Toyota Hilux. You know what I mean? That kind, just putting out a bid. Now, hubby doesn't really want his honey to talk about the Toyota Hilux what hubby is actually doing is he's trying to make a connection through the bed with his wife. Now, at that point, the wife has a choice. She can either turn towards the bidder and interact over the bid and thus establish connection, or she can turn away from her husband, turn away, and, and you, there's many different ways of turning away. You can turn away through um, not really looking, um, doing stuff on your cell phone, or belittling what has just been said. So she faces a choice. Now, what they discerned in this was that um, those couples that kept engaging the bid, interacting with the bidder, and therefore thereby making connection, I think they had a, like a 93% a chance or, you know, of, of their marriage going into the distance. But those who just didn't engage the bid, their percentages were a lot lower. Now here's the deal. And by the way, the one word that they used was kindness. Kindness. In other words, kindness is the emotional glue. Kindness kind of communicates to the other person that you really care. I mean, kindness. 
And you see, what I've noticed in neighborhood work is, is it's, it's called the allure of gentleness. In other words, if you slow down, what happens is that your neighbors will put out a bid. And what they're trying to ascertain is whether you will engage the bid, therefore interact with them, the bidder, that thereby connection will be made. And if you become that kind of person, and to be that kind of person, by the way, you have to recapture the art of small talk. I have noticed with Christians, they have lost this art. Christians no longer know how to kind of um, talk about the everyday, mundane, ordinary things that fill up people's lives. In other words, Christians, because we're so well-intentioned, we want to kind of get to some stuff very quickly. But the art of small talk needs to be recaptured in neighborhood work. And when you become this kind of person, you are seen as a gentle person and thus the allure of gentleness and people will want to do more time with you. Did you get all that? So, have a chat with the person next to you about anything. Go to it. <laughs> So, so um, just got a few little bits more to go and then we're done. Um, so I haven't, the kind of story I want to tell you now, I haven't currently got from my current neighbourhood because we've been there just a short time. But I, I feel it's important to tell this well-known story, well, at least it's, it's, I tell it a lot, because it illustrates something really important. In a previous neighbourhood, I was just getting um, our groceries so this is the ordinary, ordinary, ordinary day, you know, everyday texture of our lives. So I was just down in the local supermarket getting groceries, and I heard this voice say to me behind me, you know, "Hi, Mick." And I turned around, and there was this woman in a wheelchair. And um, uh, I said, "Do I know you?" And she said, "No, you don't know me, but I know you, and somehow I've heard you, or something like that." And so I said, oh. "So we just chatted." The art of small talk. We just chatted. And um, she was going through that aisle and I was going through this aisle. And then she went, she was in a wheelchair. And she went through her, her aisle first. I said, see ya. And, and that was it, you know. And then I went through my aisle a few minutes later. I went out of the supermarket and she was waiting for me. And so I said, oh, hi. And she said, oh, Mick, can we go somewhere, sit and talk? And I said to her, sure, you have your chair, you know, I'll find one. Um, and um, she had a wicked sense of humour, I mean, anyway. Um, and she was effing all over the place and dropping all sorts of bombs. So, um, and um, so I knew I could do that with her. And um, so we went down into a cafe just down the road. And, and I think we talked for about an hour about the all, all you know, everyday texture of of her life, all the little things that made up her life, you know. And then after about an hour, um, she said to me, I'm like, you're an effing Christian, aren't you? <laughs> and, um, and I said, yeah. And then she said, um, well, how can there be an effing God if I've been in this wheelchair all my life? I, 
And she, I'd already established that she had been, she was 38. And you know, sometimes it's a bit odd, isn't it, that someone who would talk to a complete stranger with a very deep question like that. But if you've done small talk, people do begin to open up. It's not a technique, but they do, because they pick up on kindness. And then, actually, people do, I've discovered people do want to talk about their stuff with strangers. Because they're, they're tired of the commentaries on their stuff from their, you know, significant people in their lives. They actually do want to hear a different perspective from strangers. So when she said, how can there be an effing God, you know, given that I've been in this wheelchair all my life, what I did was hit the pause button. I didn't say anything for about 30 seconds or a minute. So you've got to learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in these conversations. And then I just simply said, because her thing was, how can God be real? I said to her, well, I'm real. And how about we have a coffee, same place, same time, next week? And so we had coffees every week for two years. Same place, same time, every week. And of course, when you give that promise to people that, you know, how about we meet up every, every week, every same time, same place? It's kind of food for hope, a promise. Promises are food of hope for people. And, um, and so we did this for about two years. But, you know, I, at that time, I was an extremely, um, I had a full life. And so at this juncture, you can fall into a number of traps. You know, sooner or later, a neighbour is going to ask you to do something. And at that point, you can fall into a number of traps. I've got six. I'll give them to you quickly. Do you want them? Because yes. they are. I think they are practical and helpful. And these traps, they stop us from following through. So the first one is the embarrassment trap. If I do that which they're asking me to do, I could look bad. So we... We back off, okay? It's called the it's called the embarrassment trap. Um, when in fact, you know, some of us in terms of this neighbourhood work, we've just got to learn to laugh at ourselves. Um, we've just got to get over ourselves. You've just got to be willing to look like a fool, and that way you'll be willing to do whatever with whoever, wherever. Okay, so that's the first one, the embarrassment trap. You just got to get over yourself. Um, secondly is the timing trap, like, uh, this is the wrong time, you know, and, and some of you will be, um, for some of you, one of these traps will be your major one, but embarrassment trap, I'll look bad in the eyes of this person, timing trap, look, I'm willing to help, but not right now, do you see what I mean? So that's the timing trap. Another one is, um, the fairness trap, F-A-I-R. Fairness. Why is it always me that ends up in these kind of relationships where I've got to do coffee with someone for two bloody years? <laughs> in fact, we ended up doing coffee for four years. And you do, after a while, go, it's just not fair. Why is it always me? So that can stop us. Another one is um, uh, the unrealistic expectation trap. That is where it, this should be easier. 
Why is this so difficult? Because it's so difficult, maybe I'm not the right person, and we back the truck up. Okay, that's the unrealistic expectation trap. Another one is um, the rationalization trap. This is where, you know, oh, you know, I can't do this right now because. And we come up with a really good rational excuse. Another one is the inspiration trap. This is the last one. I'm not pumped for this right now. You know, I'm not amped. I'm not just, you know, I'm just not feeling it. You know, the adrenaline isn't buzzing or what, it's just not feel good. Do you know what I mean? Which one of those traps knocks you off your perch? in the neighborhood. Tell the person very quickly. I've got one final, I mean, we could say 303 things. I woke up this morning and I thought, which six or seven shall we do? But, one of my books is called Alongsiders, and it's just full of practical wisdom. Some people have read it here, yes? Um, it's a very good book. Um, but it's, it's, it's got a lot of this practical wisdom in it, and it's in the two bookshelves down in the thingy bob. Here's, here's, so that's alongside us. So here's the final thing, final story. In one neighborhood, so we've done all of this stuff, worked through our, you know, traps, and then it established a really good relationship with a near uh, neighbor, literal neighbor, same site. And then one day I get a phone call, and she's and I'm I'm um, somewhere else in a meeting, and she says, "Oh, Mick, I need you straight away." So you dr I dropped what I was doing, raced around to her place. It sounded urgent, and there were these two big guys, two PI guys, Polynesian Island Nation people, and they were repossessing everything that she had in their house. And I said to these two big guys, just hit the pause button, guys, I'm going inside, we'll kind of work something out. So I went into her house and I said, what's the deal? And she said, oh, everything that we own in this house, we've got on the hock, on credit, with a finance company. And we got behind on some of our payments. So now they're repossessing everything that we've got. So I rang up Ruby, my wife, and said, could you please come around straight away? And so she left her meeting and she came around and we just went outside and had a quick talk. The upshot of it all was, we would give of our, from our own money 2,000 New Zealand dollars um, to this couple. And so I went in and I said, we will give you $2,000. We won't give it to you, we'll go to the finance company and we'll, have, we'll give it to them. And I said, we do this because, you know, we, are, uh, as you know, because she did know, we are Christians, we are converted. We do a lot of what we do because we are converted, not because we're trying to convert you. And I said, um, but I said, you need to realize something. This is the one and only time we will ever give you money. Because I learned this one in the slums of Manila. And so I want to, just to finish, to read out the rationale for that. To give, I believe, if you give money, to give it one and only time to a near neighbour or a, a neighbour. Um, listen, to, listen to this. I'll, I'll read it out fast and then I'll read it out slow. 
Give once and you elicit appreciation. Give twice and you create anticipation. Give three times and you create expectation. Give four times and it becomes entitlement. Give five times and you've established dependency. I think that's brilliant. Um, so I'll read it out slowly if you want to take a note. Give once and you elicit appreciation. So for just do shorthand, once appreciation and you can fill it out later. Give once and you elicit appreciation. Give twice and you create anticipation. Give three times and you create expectation. Give four times and it becomes entitlement. Give five times and you've established dependency. So it's another little bit of practical wisdom. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know if that was too much, people, but it is half past ten. So tomorrow it's all on loving enemy. It only gets... So we do that. Thank you so much for coming. I really do appreciate it. So I'll see you tomorrow if you want to come. Yeah. Loving enemy. This is one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. Please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.